This morning's scripture, Romans 15, verses 5 through 13. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may be with one voice, that you may with one voice glorify the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and will sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The word of God, let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, we're so very fortunate to live in a time when your word is so very available to each one of us, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would intervene this morning and help us to understand your word more clearly, that you would sear your will into our hearts and minds through your precious spirit. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would help me to better communicate your word to your people, that they may understand it unlike ever before. And Lord, I pray the words I speak be not of me, but be of you and be to your glory. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So as we begin this, I think you all realize that communication can be difficult. Both writing and speaking can be difficult, and it can be difficult because we may think we say one thing, and someone may understanding it or understand it as something else, and that becomes a problem. And I'm afraid that that might have happened last week, and so I'm going to spend probably most of the time clarifying any ambiguities that I threw out there last week because it wasn't my intent. I know I had at least two people come to me and had mixed feelings about that particular message. And I'm sure that if there were two, there were more. And so I want to go back and I want to clarify that. Some got the impression that my message could have been taken, that we, the church, should basically put everything aside for the sake of unity. Because that was the focus on last week's message, last week's message is unity in the church. And that's been the focus on chapter 15 as we started through that. That basically we're just supposed to sacrifice everything for the sake of unity and getting along with each other. And if that's what you took away from it, or if that's what you think that some may have taken away from it, then I am sorry. Because that clearly was not my intent. I even went back and listened to part of it 
And in fact, I guess it's probably reasonable to assume that there were parts you could take that way. And so with that, and I know as a husband also, I think I say one thing, and in reality, whenever I probably listen to myself, I may be saying something else. I've been accused of that, and I'm quite certain that that is probably the way it happened. So I dropped the ball, and I did a poor job of explaining myself last week. I didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish because that idea or that notion was the furthest thing that I wanted to happen or for you to think the way that God was leading me in that message. So we're going to spend most, probably we're going to spend the whole morning clarifying last week. So it's sort of a a do-over and I praise God that he's given me that opportunity because I spent most of the week praying about that situation and not wanting it to be taken that way. So let's look at this broader issue of division in the church, because that's where we were last week. We were talking about division in the church, and Paul makes it pretty clear that we are to put certain things aside, namely our Christian liberty, to help lift up a brother and sister in Christ. So my question to you is, are there things in the church today that warrant an unwavering, uncompromising attitude and should not be diluted or compromised in any way? That's my question to you. And I hope that you can affirm me in saying, yeah, absolutely. There are things in the church today that we simply cannot compromise. And that's the point that I'm wanting to get at this morning is what they are and how we deal with them and how they differ from what Paul is talking about in Romans 15. Yet there are attacks on these issues that we cannot compromise on. There are attacks from the outside. There's always attacks from the outside. But there are also attacks from the inside. That was problematic, and that was actually the way I opened my message last week. I said, there are some things the Bible is clear on, it speaks on, straight up. There should be no debate about those things. But yet they are, and there shouldn't be. But then there are gray areas, you remember me talking about masks and vaccines and all this stuff. But it's the things in the Bible that we can't compromise, nor we, should we allow the outside to infiltrate inside the church and tell us that it's not right, because that's what the world has attempted to do, and unfortunately, biblical things have been taken to divide the church. should not happen. God's word is perfect and inerrant and truthful in every way. We should see it that way and not compromise on the things of or in God's word. But yet, as I see the church doing that too often in today's world, if God says in his word that we're supposed to do certain things, then we're supposed to do them. End of story. If he says in his word that we're not supposed to do certain things, then we ain't supposed to do it. It's that simple. But we allow the world to dictate to us, well, is that really what he meant? 
Because I kind of like to do the things that he says we're not supposed to. So since I kind of like to do them, let's try to look at it in such a way that it's not really what God meant. That's wrong. There shouldn't be a division over that. Everyone should come together and stand for God's word. This is his word in his church, and we should be living our lives to the best way we can to support that. I'm going to look at two specific instances this morning. Salvation. I'd say that's a big deal, wouldn't you? I'd say that salvation is a big deal. One of the things was I didn't give specifics. So we're going to get down and dirty. We're going to roll up our sleeves and we're looking at specifics. Salvation is by faith alone. That's it. That's what God's word says. And that is an important, if not the most important doctrine in the entire Bible. If we are saved by any other way than by grace, then it becomes of works. And it's no longer by faith alone. It becomes a matter of what I'm doing to gain my salvation. And if a brother or sister comes into this church and wants to start teaching that it's any other way, then I hope that we can join together and say, no, that's not right. We're not going to be divisive over the issue because you're clearly wrong. We have to deal with it in such a way. And those of you who are familiar with the book of Galatians know that's exactly what Paul was dealing with throughout the book. He was dealing with this idea or notion that there were some Judaizers, some new Christian converts that were teaching that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. And Paul was very clear, that's, that's not the case. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And these were false teachers, and he was calling them out for that. Galatians 5. For, free, freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Don't waver. Don't compromise. Stand firm then and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision as a matter of salvation, doesn't say that, but I'm throwing it in there, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So Paul's pretty clear. Not going to compromise that. My eternal life is God's. He created it for me. He brought me to him. I did nothing to gain that. And Paul says, if we compromise that, then some pretty serious things follow. He says, we've been set free, and we don't want to go back again to being slaves. Christ set us free. He kept the law for us. We don't have to do that, so we don't want to go back and become slaves to the law again. And then in verse 2, If you get circumcised in order to gain your salvation or favor with God then what Jesus did for you is no advantage. Everything that Jesus did means nothing. If I'm going to be saved by something I do, 
me, myself, then what he did on the, Christ is, on the cross is worthless. But I testify again, every man who falls back into this idea or notion of works, then you got to keep the whole law. So if you're saying, Paul's writing, if, if you're telling me that you're saved because of circumcision, then you're going back under the old covenant, then you're going to have to go back and keep the entire law, which we all know is impossible to do. It may be possible to be circumcised, but it's impossible to keep the whole law. And so that's what Paul was telling the Galatians here. If you go back and you want to live under circumcision, and you want to live under the law, then you're going to have to keep it all, and you know that's impossible. So you're, you're condemning yourself if, in fact, you go back and are trying to keep the law in order to obtain salvation. And he tells us here, if that's the case, you are severed from Christ, you have been cut off for him, he's of no benefit to you at all. You have fallen away from grace. Don't get too carried away with this. I mean, there are people that will say, well, see, you can lose your salvation there. It's not what this means. Law or grace. If you go back and say that I want to be circumcised, I want to save myself by being a good person and doing good things, then you're no longer in the grace column. You're now in the law column. You have fallen out of that grace column and you believe that everything you do is saving you. The world likes to intervene in this. The world likes to intervene and say, well, you do the best you can, right? Work hard and try to be a good person and, you know, don't beat your husband and don't beat your wife. And at the end of the day, God's going to hold it all up and say, well, you're good outweigh. It's close. It's close, but your good outweighs by just a smidgen, you're bad, and come on in. No grace. No grace. That's salvation by works. Nobody gets in. If that's your idea of Christianity, that's what Paul was fighting against in Galatians, and everyone that believes that way is doomed for all eternity because you don't need Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through who? Me. I can't get there at this giant judgment where he weighs my good and my bad. First of all, it's going to be far outweighed. And second of all, it's not... It doesn't involve Jesus, who lived that perfect life. So Paul clearly instructs the church at Galatia, don't be welcoming these types of people in your midst if they're wanting to teach this sort of thing or these sort of ideas. It's a different gospel. It's not the gospel of God's word. And he said, if they're trying to teach you something different, then that's a gospel that's foreign to Christ. That is compromising on an essential element of being a Christian. Remember I've said for the past couple weeks, we have essential things and non-essential things. What we eat or drink are non-essential things. 
The gospel being saved by grace through faith is absolutely essential. No compromise should ever be allowed or even heard. Number two, the idea of sin or what sin is should be an easy one, right? Should be a no-brainer. The Bible spells it out, tells us, gives us the Ten Commandments. Paul then goes, Jesus even went further telling us what sinful activities that we are made of, what we do, what we're not supposed to do. Things that are sinful. The Bible makes it very clear that unrepentant sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. I will repeat that. The Bible makes it clear that unrepentant sinners will not enter the kingdom of God. Continue on this Galatians theme. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's kind of the catch-all. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of God. How much clearer can you be? We're going to try. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are God's words. They're not Scott's words. But I will remain faithful to them until he takes me out by his grace. So, we have here Paul unequivocally telling the people at Corinth who will and who will not enter the kingdom of God. He says, we go on, And such were some of you. And such were all of us. Amen? But the key word is were. And that's the key word he's telling the Corinthians. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So what happened to all those people that met those descriptions in those first few verses? They were saved, washed, sanctified in the name of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. They repented, and they were cleansed. Do they then go back to those activities and continue to be those people that were described both in Galatians and Corinthians? Is that what happens? Romans 5, if you remember that, it was probably a couple years ago, but we went through Romans 5, and Paul gives the hypothetical question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer was, may it never be. So then, what is the relationship between these sinful activities that is mentioned in these verses and us as Christians? When we are saved, do those sinful activities just stop? 
Maybe, but I would venture to say that no, it just usually doesn't happen like that. They don't just stop. It's highly unlikely. It's where the war comes in. And I do hope that you've heard me say that before. Because I feel like I say and talk about the war thousands of times. There is a battle that's going on inside the members of every true Christian. And it is that battle with that old sinful man that we just can't shake loose that Paul talks about. It is a battle every day. And you say, well, what if there really is no war? What if I accepted Christ and there was no war and I just go back? The answer is pretty clear from the Bible. If you accepted Christ, there's no battle, and you just turn and go back to that same adulterous person you were before? I will tell you, you cannot be an unrepentant, unrepentant sinner and be saved. It's like oil and water. You can't be an unrepentant participant of sin and be saved. And I'm going to show you why. Brady and I had the wonderful opportunity to be at the T4G conference, and Piper spoke about this. And, you know, one thing that I realize as I get older, I think, you know, I see this for the first time. I'm not so sure that I see it for the first time. I'm thinking that I'm at the age in my life where I forget about something, and then I see it again, and I think that it is for the first time. So I'm not sure that I didn't know this, but at the time it seemed like it was really amazing. 1 Peter, 16 through, 1 Peter 1, 16 through 19. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So let's go back to the very beginning. Since it is written, you shall be holy... For I am holy. This is an absolute commandment for us. And I hope it is really eye-opening for all of us. God tells us to be holy. Because why? Because He is holy. You say that, well, Jesus forgave me of my sins and my unrighteousness was imputed to him and his righteousness was imputed to me, so I'm holy, right? In a small sense, yes, but in a larger sense, no. That's not right. Because what could happen is you have that moment in time where all that takes place and you go back in the middle of that sinfulness and you become that person that you once were. Verse 17, he judges impartially and perfectly according to each one's deeds. It's a pretty powerful passage. And it is because of that that he builds 
that's the foundation of part B of the passage, right? So the Father, God, who judges us impartially, he's not biased. You're not going to go to him and say, oh, but Lord, now. He's going to silence your mouth. Anybody ever get pulled over for speeding? I have. Anybody ever get a warning? Yeah. Do you think that was fair? Do you think the warning was fair? Probably did at the time, right? Was it just? No. It was not just. If you were speeding, you were speeding, and you should have got a ticket. God will judge us in the same way. If we have sinned, we have sinned, and we should get the punishment, which is hell. End of story. He's not going to be impartial. He's not going to be swayed except in one way. And that's the cross. But when you get there and you say, but Lord, I tried. How far do you think that's going to go? It's not. It's not. All mouths will be silenced. There's not going to be any excuse that you're going to be able to come up with. He's not going to listen to them. As much as you beg and plead with that officer that you were distracted or the kids were screaming or you were in a hurry, God's not going to buy it. God's not going to buy it. He is perfectly just in every way. So he says, we should conduct ourselves with fear during our time in exile. Where is our time in exile? Our time in exile is here, right now. We're not of this world, even though we may be in this world. So why should we conduct ourselves with fear? And we're going to get to it in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed. Hope everybody knows what it means to ransom. Somebody paid a price for you. That you were ransomed, you were bought, you were purchased... So is Peter saying here that we were ransomed from hell? That when we're saved, we're ransomed from hell? Is that what Peter's saying? Look carefully. It's true. It's not what he's saying. He is not saying that you were ransomed or purchased from the pits of hell. It is not. He is saying that we were ransomed from our futile ways that were inherited from our forefathers. What are the feudal ways that we inherited from our forefathers? What did we inherit from Adam and Eve? Three-letter word, it's sin. It's sin. Catch this, pay attention to me, because this is a big deal. And it's not because I'm saying it. So what did God use to pay the ransom? Did he use silver or gold? No, Peter says. You were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. Like that lamb without blemish. Or spot. He paid. He paid 
our ransom from sin with the blood of Christ. Think about that a little differently because we're always thinking in terms of he purchased my eternity in Christ. It's not just that. He ransomed, he paid the debt of sin so that why? We don't sin anymore. He paid the ransom to set us free from that sin. So we maintain a healthy fear of God knowing that our good works were purchased by the blood of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 24, 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Here again, Peter. He's demonstrating the necessity for Christians to live a righteous life. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why did he do that? So that we could have eternal life? That's true. But that's not what Peter's getting at. There was something else at play here. He bore our sins so that we would stop sinning. The command that we are to be holy as God is holy, that's how that gets fulfilled. He bought it. He bought our righteousness. That be holy for I am holy is not an impossible command that doesn't ever get there. It is God that takes us from one degree of glory to another. Why? Because he paid for it. Because he purchased it. He purchased our holiness and our righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What have we been healed from? Sin. We have been healed from sin and its slavery. As he quotes this last sentence here in 1 Peter 2.24, that's a quote from Isaiah. And he clarifies exactly what it means in this passage very beautifully. Because you will have many of those in the prosperity gospel that will tell you and quote to you, by his wounds you have been healed when somebody's sick or someone has cancer or someone's dealing whatever. That's not a proper interpretation of that passage. This is the proper interpretation of this passage. He paid so that we might be sinless. Not that our cholesterol would be lower. So what's the inverse of these passages in Peter? What if you are living in, embracing, or bogged down by sin? One of two things is going to happen. What if you're one of those that we just went over in Galatians and 1 Corinthians? One, that you repent. That you repent and turn from that sin because our righteousness has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's one possibility. That you repent. What if you don't repent? I got news. You ain't saved. 
you're not his. Two simple options. If you are one of those that continue in that sin and there is no war in your life and it doesn't beat you down to the point that you feel miserable every time that old man reaches up and grabs you again and you go to the foot of the cross and you say, God, help me, forgive me, help me turn from this old man that keeps dragging me down. If that's not in your vocabulary and you delight in it and you have no repentance in your heart, it's very likely that you're not saved. Why? Because God purchased your righteousness. So how does all this relate to unity? And where am I going with all this? Because I don't want any of us to misunderstand where I stand on the issue of God's word and his definition of sinfulness and how essential that is in the church. Sin is not okay. We go on sinning, we're telling God that the blood of His Son wasn't enough to get us out of the muck. You'll never hear me say that for the sake of unity we should overlook sin. There are those in the world that will, that will say, that's okay. You do you and me do me and God will all work it out in the wash. That's not biblical. That's not what God has asked us to do. We sin through, or we, through sin and through the fall. We have adulterated ourselves. We are mere copies of copies of copies of Adam and Eve. We are born sinners and God detests sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. I'll say it again. We're not sinners because we're sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born that way. All those definitions that we just read about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God in Galatians and Corinthians, we're all born that way, folks. I was born that way. You were born that way. We love sin. From the time we were very small children. God knew that. So he purchased our righteousness with the blood of his son. So that we would be holy as he is holy. To say that it's okay. To say that for the sake of unity we overlook and not worry about sin. Is an abomination to God and an an abomination to his son and the blood of Jesus. Now, back to this notion of God paying for the ransom. It's sort of a unique thought. God paid a ransom for our sinlessness, for our righteousness. What do you think the chances are that he doesn't get the benefit of the bargain? I'll rephrase that. What do you think the chances are that he says, I'm going to pay for it for the blood of my son. Now, you really don't have to be righteous. He's going to get what he pays for. I promise you that. If he paid for our righteousness, we're going to be righteous. He's not going to pay something, especially the blood of his son, and then it not happen. 
That's God. I serve a great big God. I don't have one of these little small gods that does what I ask him to do and tell him to do and think that I know more than him. He's great big, and if he buys it, he bought it, it's a dumb deal. If he paid for my righteousness, I will be righteous. End of story. He's not going to pay a ransom, especially a ransom in the blood of his son, and then not get what he paid for. He's not going to be taken advantage of, and Galatians says that he will not be mocked. <clears throat> so, if you are practicing sin and not repenting, God's not getting the benefit of the bargain. Why? Because you're probably not his. It's that simple. So last week when, when I, I said that Paul encourages us to refrain from exercising our Christian liberty so that we can be united, I was no way intimating that we are to overlook, embrace either the foundational aspects of the gospel, being saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves, or this whole notion that we are sinful. Those are essentials. And I wanted to make this perfectly clear this morning, and I hope that I've cleared up any confusion if there was any. Why? Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. These are Christian leaders. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I have to give an account for you. I'm not worried about my accounting before man. As Peter said, I don't answer to man, I answer to God. But I've got to give an account for every one of you. I want to make sure that what comes between and out of these lips can't be construed and misinterpreted as something that's going to pave your way to hell. That's a big deal. It's a big deal to me, and it should be a big deal to each and every one of us. Would it make my job here easier? Sure it would. It's all right. Don't worry about the sin. Do the best you can. Work it out in the wash. That's easy. Everybody likes to hear that. Nobody likes to hear if you're not repenting from your sin, you're bound to hell. Nobody likes that. But that's my job. So let's close this and swing back to this idea of unity and sacrifice and how does it fit. We overlook things that are not essential. And I've said it many times. We overlook things that are not essential for the sake of unity in the church. We saw Paul spell that out. What we eat, even if it's meat sacrificed to idols... Not essential. Can we eat it? Yeah, the stronger folks who believe that it's fine, they could eat it. But he cautions them. He said, don't do it just to be doing it because you're going to offend the weaker brother. And we want to build each other up. That's the whole idea and nature of unity. To build each other up. To know what can be sacrificed isn't necessarily that hard. Because we have his word. But in the process, don't ever sacrifice his word. 
don't ever sacrifice his truth. So as we close, think about that in your hearts. Let us listen to these words that that Paul and Peter and the writer of Hebrews gave us as a time that we reflect on our own lives. Know that our righteousness was purchased at a very high premium. The very blood of Christ purchased our righteousness. What are we doing with that? I think that's something that we can all ask ourselves and we can all look at introspectively. God purchased the battle and the win. He purchased the battle and the win. Now get out there and fight as if all eternity is on the line. Helen, you want to come forward? And I hope, Helen, you want to come forward and play the closing song? And I hope that this song can bring a newfound appreciation, not just in salvation, but in our righteousness. Let's all join together.